0: Good morning, you courageous souls <laughs> coming back for guilt, or, or talking about guilt. <laughs> uh, man, <laughs> I'm sweating just thinking about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. um, let's look at, uh, we're going to look at section four and five hopefully, <laughs> in, the, in Chapter 5 today. Section 4 starts on page 81. And I'm kind of working towards, in a very indirect way, towards a meditation. If I forget to do the meditation, <laughs> remind me. <laughs> I, think, I think I need it. Um, so the very first line, paragraph 1, on page 81, section 4, nice title. Teaching and healing. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> and and it's, it's a very nice section. <laughs> Jesus has a way of doing very nice things before he gets into something he knows is going to like drive us nuts. <laughs> so section four is all about sharing. In fact, he's, he points out through this that you can't even share the ego. You can't share nothing. You think you can. <laughs> you want to believe you can, but you can't. The only thing you really can share is forgiveness, that the tiny mad idea is silly. So he's talking about sharing throughout this section. And then in the next section, (laughs) he kind of, you know, he stops being nice, basically, and he starts talking about guilt. And it's the first time uh, in the course that he really, really um, discusses guilt. And, And it's pretty fundamental, especially... In this uh, section on the Holy Spirit <laughs> and dealing the Holy Spirit being the answer um for the ego that it was the Holy Spirit was god 's answer for the ego well the Holy Spirit was god 's answer for guilt, <laughs> basically the ego equals the whole panorama of sin, guilt, and fear so in this uh in section five he's going to take on guilt um why the ego does it? <laughs> how the ego does it? Still, how it's nothing. But but he's really gonna, um, and he's going to do it in a style that up to this point he hasn't done yet. Um, we've pointed out early in earlier earlier classes that um, the first four and a half chapters, meaning the first half of pretty much of chapter five, including teaching and healing, I think, were pretty much a dialogue between Jesus and Helen. I mean, you could step back and see. Helen asking questions like, what about the soul? (laughs) And then Jesus would answer it. And and then she would ask questions like biblical references, like, uh, what was the one he used? Uh, Turning the other cheek, what about that? (laughs) And then he answers that. (laughs) So you can see Helen sort of setting up this dialogue with Jesus saying, what about, what about, what about? And then he answers it, but you don't know the question was there. So the questions were taken out, so it doesn't have the fluidity that from section five in chapter five on have that discourse quality. Jesus is presenting. He's not interacting with Helen anymore. He's not giving, at least in respect to the course, he's not giving Helen specific things to do for her and Bill. (laughs) So a lot of that personal stuff was taken out also in the first four and a half chapters that related to all these kind of things that um, she was asking about. So it But beginning with section five on guilt, Jesus just is off, and he, you know, the rest of the entire text is he's he's presenting, (laughs) he's discoursing, he's um, taking all those symphonic ideas that he brought up in the first four and a half chapters, and he's going to develop them, including guilt. So up to this point, Jesus has only laid guilt on us twice. (laughs) It was once in chapter four. And once in chapter two, he just dropped the word in there. We didn't know what he was talking about, but he just kind of threw it in. It was a little tease. It was a little appetizer, a little warm up to this section five that we'll get to. Um, and then in, in chapter five, he really unleashes. I mean, the word guilt itself is mentioned more than 20 times. And then he backs off <laughs> after, after chapter five, after that section, he mentions guilt one more, two more times before you get to chapter 13, which is the full-blown expose on guilt. But he, after this section 5 on guilt, he backs off because he really wants to present, I think, eventually in chapter 9, the idea of forgiveness and how we can let go of this stuff before he really talks about it once again in chapter 13. So guilt is mentioned one more time in chapter 6, one more time in chapter 12, just drops it in there. And then in chapter 13, it's like 95 times, literally. <laughs> I counted them <laughs> in big red. Not, I didn't go through the whole chapter. But it's 95 times that he starts really talking about guilt. But the first time he really, he, he seriously develops the ideas in this section coming up, section five. So I wanted to do a little meditation on guilt. And... um Actually, I think I should talk a little bit about the chart, especially for people that aren't familiar with Ken Wapnick's chart. This this we call this reverently, respectfully <laughs> the chart. It's the it's the metaphysics of how we left heaven, everything above the top line. We left oneness. We thought we did. We stepped outside of heaven. We considered the tiny mad idea of we could be the authority, the tiny, mad idea of separation. Um, we had two reactions to that idea of separation. One was to realize how silly it was. Course calls that Holy Spirit. And then, um, and then the part of us that want, wanted to take that idea of separation seriously and run with it, the Course calls that part of us the mind. So you've got, you've got the, our true reality in heaven We seem to step outside of that into a realm of experience the Course calls the mind. He's not talking about the brain. He's not talking about what's going on between my two ears. But he's talking about this internal place called the mind where we have two choices, the way we react to that tiny, mad idea, TMI, tiny, mad idea of separation. One was the Holy Spirit said, it's silly. And the ego side of us said, run with it. <clears throat> and what happened with running with it was in order to believe it, to actually believe we separated, we made up this incredible story of sin, guilt, and fear. And that was a huge part of it. And the, and the, and the middle part of that, the guilt part, <laughs> is what keeps the whole story running. Sin was that we believe we separated. That was bad enough. Guilt says that what we did was terrible. We attack God. And Jesus really gets into that in, in this upcoming section, section five. And then he even, we even convince ourselves that God is really furious at him for attacking him and separating from him, and he's going to punish us. And that's where all that sort of somewhat conscious fear comes in. So this whole story of sin, guilt, and fear is, is, is really prevalent throughout in content throughout the entire course, that we're hanging on to that story, that we don't want to let it go. And as Jesus told us in, in uh, section four, in chapter four, this need not be. <laughs> we don't have to hold on to this story. We don't have to believe that we separated. We don't have to feel guilty about it. We don't have to believe God's even going to punish us. And for us as little stick figures in the dream, we didn't have to go through all that trouble of projecting that sin, guilt, and fear on the stick figures in the dream. So the reason he's going to talk about guilt a lot in, in this section, and later on from chapter 13 all the way through all the chapters, is it, it, it's really what we hang on to, this, this feeling internally that something's really wrong. And even more to the point, I did something really wrong. So we'll kind of get to that going over these two sections, hopefully. And, um, but as an opening meditation where he talks about guilt is lesson 223, page 403 in the workbook. Lesson 223, page 403 in the workbook. And he's it, saying, God is my life, not the ego. <laughs> God is my life. And I have no life but his. I have no ego. I have no separated identity. My true life is his life. I have no life but his. And so, and then he goes on. Um, we believe we lived apart from God, a separate identity, a separate entity, i.e. I- the ego. Um, and and we're, we're looking at that. And we're, and he's asking, asking us to be willing to let that go. And then in italics, he says, um, line three, we would look upon our sinlessness, because the ego is all about sin. The ego is all about sin, guilt, and fear. We would look upon our sinlessness for guilt proclaims that we are not your son. I mean, guilt screams that we're not his son. I mean... And, and, you know, like, one of the things um, that takes a while, I think, as course students, beginning course students, to realize when he's talking about guilt, well, you know, it sounds like he's talking about my guilt. (laughs) Well, I'm not really aware of my guilt, (laughs) but I'm sure aware of your guilt. (laughs) I might not call it guilt, but I'm saying you're the problem, you're to blame, you robbed me of my peace. you're the victimizer, you robbed somebody of their peace. maybe it wasn't me directly. But the, the gist of it is, is guilt is very, very real. And I'm hanging on to it. And rather than own it and let it go internally, I have to project it on you or somebody, somebody something. So that's what he's talking about here. Guilt screams. Initially, it screams that my brother is not God's son. Because look what he did. Pick your favorite bad guy of the day. I mean, when we point the finger at him, we're screaming, his guilt declares he's not God's son. But he's just a mirror of us. So internally, we're going, we're not God's son either. (laughs) I mean, that's what's going on. And that's where Jesus is going to eventually take us back to that awareness of what the scream is really about, what the grievance is really about. It's not our brother's guilt. (laughs) I mean, we start with that. But it's got nothing to do with the, I mean, it's just a distraction from our own internal guilt of hanging on to believing I threw Jesus out the window. I attacked my own identity. I disconnected from my father. And all those phrases Jesus uses throughout the course. But we're not in touch with that. So he's going to help us move from blaming our brother to realizing how much we're blaming ourselves. And he calls that guilt. So, I mean, it's really, kind of, it takes a while to get a handle on guilt equals blame equals a grievance equals a resentment. You know, they're seeming degrees, but they're really all the same thing. <laughs> they're all reflecting what's going on internally so that I don't realize what's going on internally. So, that's, all that stuff's going on in Lesson 23, 223, and... Um, it's on page four hundred three in the workbook. Lynn, you want to read that one, and we'll get quiet for a minute. You're on mute, Lynn. you. Sure.
1: God is my life. I have no life but His. I was mistaken when I thought I lived apart from God, a separate. Entity that moved in isolation, unattached, and housed within a body? Now I know my life is God's. I have no other home, and I do not exist apart from him. He has no thoughts that are not part of me, and I have none but those which are of him. Our Father, let us see the face of Christ instead of our mistakes. For we who are your Holy Son are sinless. We would look upon our sinlessness for guilt proclaims that we are not your son and we would not forget you longer. We are lonely here and long for heaven where we are at home today we would return our name is yours and we acknowledge that we are your son
0: we'll get quiet a few moments i'll bring this back And gently, gently come back. So all this chart stuff, if you haven't seen it before, or if you're not really familiar with it, don't worry about it. <laughs> Just shove it aside for now. We got lots of videos on the school for A Course of Miracles where I spend, we spend an hour at least going over it. <laughs> so what I did in three minutes didn't do any of it justice, but the gist of it is we're going to look at this crucial thing we call guilt. But before we do that, Jesus is going to be nice, (laughs) a little nice anyway. And that's section four in chapter five about teaching and healing. Probably one of the most important lines in this section that kind of stood out to me right away was the first line, what fear has hidden still is part of you. Well, then it's like, well, what did fear hide? <laughs> What's he talking about? And how did it? How in the world did it hide something from me, if I'm making it up? What's going on here? Would fear his hidden still is part of us? So, I mean, what he's doing, he, he's, he's making a stab here at going back internally, where we actually chose to be separate, and then chose to be afraid to let it go. When Jesus talks about fear in the Course, he's really talking about three different levels of fear. And, and the one he talks about the least is all of our conscious fears in the world. Lesson five, I'm never upset for the reason I think. I'm never afraid for the reason I think. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, we're afraid of the virus. We're afraid our finances are shot. We're afraid we're gonna lose you know, the house over ahead. whatever, whatever, whatever the conscious fear is, it's just a distraction from what the real fear is. And you don't have to believe that he'll walk you through it. <laughs> but we start with, I'm never afraid for the reason I think, what if he's, what if that's true? So my conscious fear is the, the doorway back, really. From the ego's point of view, they keep us stuck in the dream. I think I'm afraid of this. I, mean, I think I'm afraid of my partner leaving. I think I'm afraid I'm going to get the virus and, 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 and hopefully not die. But, I mean, all that kind of stuff is scary in the world. And he's telling us not, not, not to be afraid of that. He's just saying, what if that's not the reason you're really afraid? Are you, are you willing to go there, take a peek, see why you're really afraid? So that's the conscious layer of fear. Just underneath that, in our unconscious, <laughs> in our wrong mind, is, is that the, it, the part of the story we made up, sin, guilt, and fear, we're really, we've got ourselves convinced just above this line right here, unconsciously, that God's going to punish us for what we did. That he agrees that we did something terrible, that um, when he catches up with us, you know oh hell 's going to break loose i 'll probably go to hell, et etc, 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 so there 's that fear, but then he 's real adamant in many places in the course that fear is made up too it 's not what you 're really afraid of what you 're really afraid of is up here you 're afraid of the, of god you 're afraid of love, which is more preposterous than anything he's said so far. <laughs> We all think we're running around trying to find love and peace and a miracle, but he's saying we're looking for that in all the wrong places. (laughs) As long as we're hanging on to this internal fear of God, this internal fear of love, we're not gonna let it go. One of the big steps for addicts and alcoholics when they go to a 12-step meeting is they have to begin to admit the possibility that they're an addict, <laughs> that something's wrong, <laughs> that, that maybe, I, maybe I could find some help here. What well, Jesus is saying, your real, your real addiction that you're hanging on to, your real belief, your real addiction is, if I keep God away from me, I'll be okay. And, and he says this in, in section five. I mean, it's a preposterous idea. That's why it's called the tiny mad idea of separation, the tiny mad idea of guilt. It's insane. <laughs> why would you be afraid of love? Why would you be afraid of peace? But until we get back to that and let that go, and um, you know, things really don't fundamentally change here. There's a process. We work our way up to that. But the real fundamental change is when we let that fear of God go. We stop pushing Jesus away, and we let him into our awareness. So that's pretty crucial, I think, and helpful. Not crucial, but certainly helpful to understand those three levels of fear. Because when he's talking about what fear is hidden, he's not talking about, well, he sort of is. (laughs) The conscious fears are just a distraction from this fear that we're afraid we're going to get punished. And this fear is just a distraction from the real fear of love. I'm not even making this stuff up. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus said it first. It's in the chorus. In in the four obstacles to peace in chapter 19, he says he starts out, it's really insulting. <laughs> if if you're in the mood to have a good, insulting ego day, go read the obstacles to peace. Because he says you're not afraid of of pain. You're not really afraid of guilt. You're not afraid of sin. The first three obstacles is you're attracted to all that stuff. The most insulting one, he says you're attracted to death. Like, nah, I don't think so. I'm not running around thinking I'm attracted to death. (laughs) But, I mean, he's really adamant about that. We're attracted to the idea of death. And then those three are bad enough. And and then he says what you're really afraid of, (laughs) what you're really afraid of is God. That's, an, that's the last obstacle to peace. That's the last obstacle to be overcome. Now, once again, we don't have to believe all that stuff because he's going to eventually walk us back into that awareness by going through these steps. But just have a roadmap of where he's going with this and what he's telling us we're really afraid of. Chapter 13, he's real adamant. You're not afraid to go inside and see that, this, that you believe in the story of sin, guilt, and fear. He says, you're afraid to go inside and see there is no sin. Because your whole identity, (laughs) our whole identity as a body here in the world and certainly as a separate self in our mind is based on hanging on to guilt, based on hanging on to guilt. Just take a look. Jump ahead to section 5. The very first sentence in section 5 in paragraph 1 on page 83 Perhaps some of our concepts will become clear and more personally meaningful if the ego's use of guilt is clarified. I had to stop and read that sentence a whole bunch of times. I'm trying, you know, I'm imagining, I'm Helen, and suddenly, you know, all these concepts just seem way over the top. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's an idea of healing, and everybody's an idea, you know, whatever. And then he goes, no, 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 we're going to bring this down to you. (laughs) We're going to make this personally meaningful. We're going to see why this story of sin, guilt, and fear is all about you or who you think you are. So this is where he's going, (laughs) in Section 5. And you can imagine, like, as any of us would do, Helen is probably, like, taking a big, deep breath here. (laughs) Like, maybe I don't want to know how this is personally meaningful to me. (laughs) You can philosophize all you want, Jesus, but now you're going to make it personally meaningful to me. And then he goes, uh, uh, well, then, the ego has a purpose, the Holy Spirit has a purpose. And so we, we, we begin to realize that what we're upset about was just a setup. Favorite Bruce line of the week. <laughs> what we're upset about is simply us setting up ourselves to be upset about something in the world and not realizing that we have a wrong mind, not realizing that guilt's the issue, and not realizing we're hanging on to that guilt. So back to the nice stuff. Teaching and healing on page eighty-one. So it kind of lays down that this idea of fear in the first paragraph—that we are afraid. We're, we're you know, ultimately, we're, you know, he's trying to point out to Helen that she's afraid of him. The whole thing issue she was dealing with in in chapter four, he's bringing it up again. You're still afraid. And what your fear is hiding, meaning your own true identity, your own connection with me, is still part of you. And then joining the atonement is the way out of that fear, meaning am I willing to let Jesus take me to that awareness of the atonement that nothing happened, that I'm not this separate identity, that can feel guilty, and that can even feel fear. So he lays all that out in the first paragraph. The second paragraph. Um, the, the and I think, I think once again, this is, I think she's, I think Helen is asking him questions because it doesn't really flow as well as section five does. For example, paragraph two, what the ego makes, it keeps to itself. The ego's weak, really. The ego's really nothing, <laughs> but what it makes up, it, it, it keeps to itself, meaning it uses everything it makes up to separate itself, to reinforce separation. Its existence is unshared. Egos don't share with other egos. They bargain. They compromise. You give me a little of this, I'll take a little of that. <laughs> but they don't really share the same thing. Sharing the idea of separation isn't sharing, is what he's going to point out here. And then he goes, And then this really kind of was weird (laughs) because I started thinking the ego was eternal. The ego does not die, it was merely never born. Meaning your concept of the ego happened way, way, way before you ever thought you were a body. (laughs) Whatever happened in terms of this seeming separation in time and space, you you were already a full blown ego way before you were born into a body. Jesus says babies don't come in innocent. They're full-blown egos ready ready to, like, explode. Actually, Ken said that. Jesus was a little bit nicer. Bruce,
2: go ahead. One of my favorite uh, Ken anecdotes is when he says, uh, you know, if you could understand baby talk, the first words out of their mouth mouth would really be, it's not my fault.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do this. (laughs) I didn't have a choice. I was brought into this mess. (laughs) I need now. I need. I think that's the second thing babies say is, I need. (laughs) Yeah. So the ego doesn't die. It it was merely never born. Actually, it doesn't exist at all. That's the good news. (laughs) Not only is it never born, it wasn't there ever. And then he goes on, physical birth is not a beginning. It's a continuing. And then he starts explaining continuing in terms of what really continues. But there is a leap there between the ego continuing (laughs) and and what really continues, meaning our right mind and forgiveness and all that good stuff. But uh, there's not a really nice transition between those two. He says, if the ego does not die, it was merely never born. Physical birth is not the beginning of the ego. It is a continuing of the ego. And then, then he just leaps into everything that truly continues has already been born. And then he starts, you know, then you can see by the content that he picks up on the idea of the right mind, but he jumps from ego to right mind in that. And I don't think it was very smooth. I think Helen asked a question like, well, what about? And that was his answer. You don't get that in section five. You don't get that in the whole rest of the course. There's a real flow that begins to happen that I that and I'm just pointing this out because I think sections like this are pretty hard to understand without having an idea of the content of the whole rest of the course. I mean Lynn's good at at starting with things going on in, ch- in the first four chapters, I stay away from it. <laughs> I want you to learn a metaphysics first. <laughs> I want you to read chapter you know, 13 first. <laughs> and then we'll go back to those first four chapters and we'll frame it all, that, that's my style. <laughs> and it, you don't have to do it that way. <laughs> if the first four chapters work for you, great. But I think it, it for me, it's like, it took me like 10 minutes just to read that paragraph <laughs> to figure out what he was talking about and how he switched up going from the wrong mind to the right mind. And if none of that makes any sense, don't worry about it. Just read it. And he's trying to be nice here. That's the main point. <laughs> he's trying to say that what, what's real continues and what's unreal never was. Um, he, he does a pitch for the atonement and the rest of uh, that paragraph. And then, then the idea of sharing really comes in. Paragraph 2, line 11. That in order to realize that nothing has happened, we have to share that idea with our brother. And then sharing just takes off for the whole rest of this section. In order to wake up, we have to share the blessing of the atonement with our brother. We have to share with our brother the possibility that he's not the home of evil, darkness, and sin however bad you think what he did was or not. So line 11, the atonement must be understood as a pure act of sharing. Pure in the sense that we don't leave anybody out. So he's he's, asking us, name names here, figure out who you're leaving out, and then work with that. (laughs) Work with those faces that you're pointing the finger at. So, there's a huge emphasis in this section on purification, which uh, I'm sure freaked Helen out too. It certainly freaked me out when I first started reading the course. Purification in the course is never about purifying your body. It's never about fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, you can do that if, it, if you feel good. <laughs> it's not about being crucified on the cross, as in the biblical story of Jesus. It's not about being a martyr so that you become purified. Purification, of course, is simply stop leaving your brother out (laughs) initially. And then purification internally is stop leaving you out. Stop insisting you're separate from God. It's just letting go of the story of sin, guilt, and fear. That's all purification is. We let go of this belief that isn't true. So when he's talking purification here, he's not talking about Old Testament purification. Does anybody know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Anybody know that story? Where's David Delaplane when you need him? (laughs) So it's a wild story. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's really freaked out with the Jews, and they're not worshiping this god he just put up. He's the Egyptian king. And he's going to burn and fire anybody who doesn't worship that new statue he's put up. So he's going to purify the Jews (laughs) because they're not worshiping the right god. So he grabs these three Jews. I don't know anybody named Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego either. So these are pretty wild names. <laughs> but somehow they're stuck in my head as like uh, a major, um, like, Jungian archetype. So he takes these three guys and he throws them into this fire. And nothing happens. <laughs> they don't burn up. And he leaves them in there for hours and they just don't fry. And then they come out and he's all blown away. And, of course, everybody's seen the miracle, et cetera. But that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the Catholic version of purgatory. <laughs> we have to, before we go right to heaven, we got to burn a little. <laughs> we got to be purified of our sins. Now, Jesus is saying there ain't no sin, and there ain't no need for that kind of purification. You just have to let go of believing there is a need for purification. You're already pure, and you're hanging on to believing you're not. So when he's talking about purified here, (laughs) it's not the traditional idea of purification. You don't have to be like Shadrach and going to the burning burning flames, hoping that God doesn't burn you up. (laughs) Like something will survive. Go ahead, Bruce.
2: Maybe those three guys were doing as best as they could do.
0: (laughs) Oh, I just got it. (laughs) If you didn't get it, don't worry about it. Ask Judy she got it yeah, yeah. I,
3: have a I um i i think i was under the impression that purification in the course uh had to do with you bringing what your seeming errors to the altar um much like we do in the 12 steps when we do step 4 and 5 is that correct or not
0: i think in in um the in in the steps, my experience in the steps is, yeah, that's a definite <laughs> that's a <definitely> good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and dealing with those resentments and dealing with those mistakes and, and fessing up to my role that I played in those mistakes, that's a huge uncovering process. Yes. And, and, yeah, very valuable. I think the course takes it one step further. That was never about what you did or what the other guy did. It was really about this internal guilt that you're hanging on to. And I think all twelve-step people eventually get there. In fact, a lot of them wind up in the course, yeah. <laughs> right, right,
2: right.
0: So, yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Don't don't not do a four-step. <laughs> so, and then he goes on, paragraph three, line two. Um, Every loving thought is shared because every loving thought is loving. <laughs> it isn't looking for trouble, isn't looking for condemnation. It, it, one way of looking at, at, at the process of waking up is we let go. You don't, you don't have to love. <laughs> you don't have to make a miracle happen. You don't have to be purified to have a miracle, Old Testament style. You just need to lighten up and stop excluding whatever brother you're excluding from that process. That's where we start. That's what step four is all about in 12 steps. And then eventually we, we begin to move inside into the awareness that we're, we're hanging on to guilt. It was never our brother's guilt. It wasn't even the guilty things I did as a body. But this internal guilt is really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's really bad. And we did all kinds of things to avoid looking at that i.e. make up time and space, i.e. make up stick figures in the world and believe we're little bodies running around. So that internal goes is intense, and we did a lot not to admit that's what we did. Um, so love is just a done deal. We, we, if we're open to sharing this message of love with all our brothers, don't leave anybody out, that's the purification, and that just happens naturally because we're letting Jesus in. He does it, really. We don't have to. So the idea of sharing. And then that thing in italics, line 7, paragraph 3, it is impossible to share opposing thoughts. You can share only the thoughts that are of God and that he keeps for you. So what he's emphasizing here is you can try to share nothing. (laughs) You can try to share separation. You can do special love relationships and set up bargains and compromises, but you're really not sharing anything it's just a synthetic form of sharing. It's just convincing ourselves that that I can get something I need as a body for a little while. So, So what he's going for is, oh, and then line 12, the way we wake up, the way we're purified, the decision to share them with our brother is our purification, once again, we're purifying ourselves of leaving anybody out. (laughs) Cast no one out. Don't make your brother the bad guy. Go ahead, Bruce.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I was just kind of, like Don is like the, the 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 two thought systems approach to purification the egos is all about separating one thing from another thing if you think in terms of how we, when you purify something on the level of form you know you're you're taking something that doesn't belong in and removing it somewhere else, but the holy spirit's use of purification is is total inclusion and in recognizing that there's nothing that doesn't belong anyway once once again totally opposite <laughs> as always. Mm-hmm.
0: And then he says the way to wake up to what Bruce is talking about, the way we wake up to, um, and, and, and in order to hear this message that we're all purified already, there's nothing to purify, is line two in paragraph four. Listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to this one voice, stop listening to the ego and open up to the Holy Spirit implies the decision to share it the voice of the Holy spirit with our brother to share it in order to hear it yourself. <laughs> Once again, the process is always, I, I'm not totally aware. I'm purified right this second. I'm not aware that I'm already forgiven, but I share that possibility with you. I stop making you the bad guy. And in that blessing of innocence that I'm willing to see with Jesus's help, about you, I begin to realize that it's in me too. I hear it myself. That's always the process. That's why, in some ways, why the course is so practical. Because in a heartbeat, we can find bad guys. (laughs) That's why we believe we're here (laughs) as bodies. We don't want to admit that, but that's our purpose from the ego's point of view is to find bad guys and never admit we chose this internally. Um, He goes on about sharing again. Paragraph five, middle of line two. Oh, start with the front. Teaching should be healing. That's the name of the section. And the way we teach is we share the possibility with our brother that he's innocent. That's how we teach. And we wake up, the way we learn that message is we demonstrate it, we teach it to our brother. We share the blessing of innocence with our brother. So teaching should be healing because it is the sharing of ideas and the recognition that to share those ideas is to strengthen them. Real ideas. <laughs> ideas of innocence. Ideas of no guilt. <laughs> ideas of no condemnation. That's the good stuff. That's what we're sharing. I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to be finger pointing all the time. So he, he continues, talks about sharing throughout this whole section. Ken points out in paragraph 8, uh, Ken's, Ken calls paragraphs like paragraph 8, and in fact, all of chapter 8, the first four, the first half of chapter 8, he calls it the singing Jesus. <laughs> it's basically, it's an aria that Jesus is singing to us. And if you read it that way, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, if you read... Paragraph 8, the way Jesus is speaking it, even read it out loud, it's pretty cool. (laughs) It's like he's singing to us. So this is the first time in in the course where Ken pointed out he thought Jesus was singing this aria to us. And he really does that a lot in the first half of chapter 8 later on. And you'll get a sense of it when you get there. And then uh, let's get into some guilt. So there's no guilt in heaven. <laughs> there's no forgiveness in heaven. Whatever oneness is, there's no miracles in heaven. There's no you, there's no me, there's no Holy Spirit, there's no Jesus. There's not these symbols of, of, of seemingly separated things. We don't know what oneness is. Whatever it is, don't worry about it. You'll find it when you get back. <laughs> um, but he's really adamant here that there's no guilt in heaven. None of the symbols of separation are in heaven. Whatever the experience of oneness is in heaven, it doesn't include any of these symbols of separation. Uh, paragraph 2, line 6, guilt is always distru- disruptive. You know, you think about that, well, yeah. <laughs> you, you start feeling guilty, or you're on a mission to find guilt in somebody else, that's pretty disruptive. That <laughs> can mess things up really fast. If you're at a party and you think somebody's guilty, it'll mess up your party. <laughs> so guilt is pretty disruptive. <laughs> Anything that engenders fear is divisive. So this, you know, he doesn't, act, you know, like, I think one of Ken's contributions is he took those three little words, sin, guilt, and fear, and he put them like bam, bam, bam. But in these next two paragraphs, Jesus almost does that. Because he's pointing out how, fear came out of guilt, and how guilt came out of divisiveness, how guilt came out of separation. Divisiveness, separation, sin, all synonymous. Guilt, disruption, feeling bad, all synonymous. Fear, God's going to get me, I'm going to be punished, all synonymous. So in these two paragraphs, he's really laying that out, Jesus is. So anything that engenders fear, sin, guilt, fear, is divisive because it obeys the laws of division, the laws of separation. It's like dominoes. If I believe I separated, I am going to feel bad, and I am going to believe God's after me, and he's going to punish me, and I'll be afraid. And Once again, that's not even the real fear. That's just this in-between layer of fear. The real fear is God's not going to get me, he's not going to punish me, and there is no sin. As, as silly as that sounds, that's what we're really afraid of. But in this story of sin, guilt, and fear, guilt obeys the laws of separation, and it engenders fear. Sin came first, guilt came second. Fear. Not really. I mean, they're all just, you know, a whirling tornado of all this mess. You can't have sin, you can't have sin without guilt. You can't have guilt without fear. You can't have fear without sin. <laughs> you can't have sin without, uh, et cetera, et cetera, without guilt. And it just keeps spinning. That's why we feel so crazy. We're caught in this tornado of sin, guilt, and fear. And then rather than step outside of that tornado with the Holy Spirit, we project all that mess on bodies. We project that whole tornado that's going on inside internally in our wrong mind. We project that tornado on bodies. Sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear. (laughs) On and on and on. So, and then it he, he really gets hardcore about what guilt is here, <laughs> because it's not just an idea. It's not, yeah, I think I'll separate, that'll be an interesting idea. Yeah, I'll feel guilty, that'll be an interesting idea. No, they're not just ideas, we actually believe we did them. And we actually feel terrible because we believe we did them. And that's what he says in line eight. If the ego is the symbol of separation, sin, it is also the symbol of guilt. It's also the symbol of fear. <laughs> that's what the ego does. Sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear. Guilt is more than merely not of God. It wasn't just some intellectual concept. It is the symbol of your belief that you attack God. I mean, and that's so far out of our awareness running around his bodies, <laughs> which is why we're running around his bodies, so we don't admit that's what's really going on. So this is a totally meaningless concept, except to the ego. He said, like, you're running around here as bodies. This this idea that you attack God is totally meaningless because you took that idea and projected it on your brother. (laughs) You're saying, I'm not upset because I attack God. I'm upset because look at what my brother attacked me. He robbed me of peace. He victimized me. And I'm not calling him my brother anymore. That's for sure. So this is a totally meaningless concept except to the ego. But do not underestimate the power of the ego's belief that it attacked God. This is the belief from which all guilt really stems. I attacked God. I killed my connection with my father. It's not true. That's the good news. (laughs) I didn't really throw Jesus out the window internally. He didn't go anywhere. But he's trying to get us back into the mind to realize that and that's really the dark night of the soul when you when you get to that place where you really think you're disconnected and everything you've done in this lifetime and probably many more <laughs> has been a symbol of divisiveness and disruption and deception and and you were the last one to realize it it's the really dark night of the soul and jesus at that point, really, that's when we really got to remember to ask him for help to see we're not that. Because at that point, we're pretty much insisting we're that. <laughs> and we have a whole history to prove it. This lifetime, many lifetimes before, you know, don't tell me, Jesus, I'm not the home of evil, darkness, and sin. That's what we're insisting on. But he doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and the reason he doesn't go anywhere is because he knows it's all made up, that you're not that. And he'll show you that if you just let him in. So that's what he's saying. The ego is the part of the mind that believes in division. How could part of God detach itself without believing it is attacking God? Uh, Line five, if you identify with the ego, you must perceive yourself as guilty. Once again, sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear, sin, guilt, fear. Whenever you respond to your ego, the belief that you're a separate identity, you will experience guilt, and you will fear punishment. Sin, guilt, fear. Sin, guilt, fear. Sin, guilt, fear. So I used to think Ken just made that stuff up. <laughs> Here it is. it The first big Jesus discourse, and he's talking about sin, guilt, fear. <laughs> Any questions, thoughts? Trish, you got anything? Yeah, you're good. We can hear you. (laughs) Now we (laughs) can't. Wait, hold on. Yeah, you're still muted. I can't get you back.
3: Uh, okay now?
0: There you go. All right.
3: Okay. Um, No, I don't have any questions. (laughs) Thank you. I'm trying to take it all in. It's a lot.
1: (laughs) It's a lot. I, uh, Tim? Yeah. I'm thinking that the the way that we make this more, you know, like you were talking about Helen and her needing to make uh, Jesus needing for her to make this personal to her, is that maybe I'm not in touch with the fact that I'm guilty because I attacked God, but every time I judge or attack a brother, I am attacking God. So that becomes a now situation that I can use for the the healing if I recognize that when I'm attacking my brother, I'm actually just reenacting the attack on God.
0: Yeah, and I, I think he says something like that in here, but I can't find it. <laughs> but that's the gist. Yeah. And the way we don't know we attack God is we... Judge our brother and think he's responsible. Not for the attack on God, because we that's out of our awareness, but he's responsible for my lack of peace. And that I'm internally, I don't even know I have an internal at that point. (laughs) I'm so busy blaming my brother. There's two reasons why we believe we're bodies. One is we forget we have the mind, period. Much less we don't remember the Holy Spirit, we don't remember the ego, we don't remember the story of sin, guilt, and fear. So the mind's out of awareness. And now, and then the second reason is the pain, the pain for believing in sin, guilt, and fear does not go away. It, it hurts to believe in that. It hurts to feel disconnected from our father and believe that we're actually disconnected. It hurts to believe we did that disconnection. But rather than let all that go, we projected onto the world, onto these individual bodies running around, And now I think my mission, without ever admitting it, is I have to go find who the bad guy is. I'm already in pain, but I have to go find somebody and believe they're the ones that are causing the pain. So we forget we have a mind, and then we take the source of the pain and we blame it on all these things in the world. That's it, that's the mission, the ego. <laughs> I mean, we think we're going to work and we think we're having families and, and kids and grandparents and, and dating and all kinds of stuff. Nah, <laughs> there's only two missions in the world. One is to look for bad guys and wait for the other shooter to drop if they're not bad right now. And the other one is to let go of that need to look for bad guys. Forgiveness, that's what forgiveness is. Letting go of the need to look for bad guys. That's the two missions.
3: Tim, it, it occurs to me while you're talking, you know, when I think about this on a practical level of dealing with my brothers, because you're right, I can't always access my guilt um, or my fear of God. Is to really look at my interactions with my brother. But sometimes because I'm looking at my brother as a separated self, you know, um, that can be very problematic. still looking through the eyes of the ego, so I am trying to look at every brother as the entire sonship, which is a stretch, okay, for the for the body's eyes, you know, but it's really starting to help, you know, and just was wondering, do you have any uh, thoughts about that, and practical ways of accessing that even deeper?
0: certainly in my own practice, and And I mean, if you can go there right away and realize that my brother is a representative of the entire sonship (laughs) and what I'm holding against him, I'm holding against everybody. I mean, if you get that right away, you're, you know, you're, you're there, (laughs) you're there where Jesus is trying to take you. In terms of steps, you know, part of my morning ritual is, is I, I do a fourth step. I take my morning bad guys (laughs) who's pushing my buttons political bad guys, personal bad guys. <laughs> Doesn't matter. And 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 I I go through that, I call it my parade of drama. <laughs> I visualize each of them and I tell them, I'm willing to see you the way Jesus is seeing you. And and my experience has been with each person I do that with, I lighten up. I can almost feel my awareness expanding. And it's starting to include everything in the room, (laughs) you know, Lynn's usually sitting, sitting there meditating too. the cat's sitting on on her lap. (laughs) The birds are at the window. It starts, you know, like the son of God starts growing at that point. (laughs) Every time I take a favorite bad guy, it gets bigger. (laughs) So for me on a practical level, you know, do what you got to do, whatever works, do it. (laughs) Start with whoever.
3: Yeah, I do that. I just was trying to make that more of a deeper practice. Um, so um, I think this is all helping. Thank you,
2: though.
0: Yeah, my I rephrase it all the time, but my, my morning thing is um, I tell the person in my mind's eye, you know, I want to see you the way Jesus sees you, and then I want to hear us. I'm moving into the us I want to hear all of us the way Jesus hears us. So I start with the specific, and, I, and then I kind of broaden it to the big us. So that, that's my approach lately. <laughs> Once again, whatever works. <laughs> One of the kind of frightening lines, if you sit with it, from an ego's point of view, paragraph four, line 10, the ego does not perceive sin as a lack of love. I mean, how stupid is that? <laughs> I mean, obviously, separation is a lack of love. But the ego doesn't see it that way. And, okay, so how does the ego see it? It's a positive act of assault. Meaning that in order to maintain me, I have to actively attack God. This is a good thing. That's what the ego's saying. I just didn't attack God. This is positive. <laughs> My separation was a good thing. I'm off and running now on my own because in heaven, I didn't have a chance. <laughs> in fact, in heaven, I didn't exist at all. So this is a positive act of assault, meaning this, the ego really believes separation, sin, guilt, and fear are good things. Yeah, and sit with that, sit with the insanity of that, <laughs> that's pretty nuts. I mean, on a good day, even, you know, logically, none of us would think that was true, but this is what the ego believes. This is what our internal belief is. Go ahead, Bruce.
2: Seems like it seems like it, this spells out that, you know, both the Holy Spirit and the act and the ego are very proactive moment to moment. There's no idle thoughts in it. And you know, everything is really literally, you know, contributing to one thought system or identity or the other, has not it? Yeah.
0: And that that's what he says in the next line. This positive act of assault. Every second, every millisecond, that whole idea that the universe is coming, going a million times in a second, but every one of those milliseconds, we have to make this positive act of assault because this is necessary to the ego's survival. Because as soon as you regard sin as a lack, instead of a positive act of assault, you'll let it go. Once you realize you're ripping yourself off, you won't do it anymore. <laughs> but the ego is saying, no, 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 you're maintaining your identity. This is a good thing. <laughs> it's good that you attack God. This is a positive act. But once you realize it, sin is actually a lack of something, and I'm missing out on love, he says, you will automatically attempt to remedy the situation. You'll start asking for help. <laughs> You'll be like, help. Help! I'm crazy. I need help. Go Tim, ahead.
3: My my experience of this, uh, particularly, I lo- I learned this really well in corporate America. Is that <clears throat> I was always having to look out for my own survival, but I had to do it in a very nice way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had to put a smiley face on it. So I learned how to be passive aggressive. And what the what we call in the steps, you know, hiding a bad, a good, a bad motive under a good one. So some of my biggest learning about the ego is that it it uses positivity very subtly to 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 us um, sometimes by doing things like this, you know. And so I think I'm I'm okay because I'm looking out for my best interest and I'm doing all these things, but all the while I'm attacking or denying or my brother. And I, it has no way of bridging uh, a shared identity. No way of doing it. And so this, you know, I can see why the course is bent on. This is a course about undoing. Because, you know, I mean, I've mean, built a granite house out of doing these kinds of things, both overtly and covertly.
0: We, uh, we started watching a series last night from the based on the late 60s early 70s politics in this country what women had to do <laughs> to get 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 in kate blanchett's in it it's fairly political but i mean it it certainly shows from a woman's point of view the face the faces they had to put on to get over the the really the, the stuff that they had to put up with <laughs> would would rate as 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 serious sexual abuse now <laughs> Sometimes go ahead.
3: And to become pseudo-masculine, right? Oh yeah. So it's sort of like this shadow masculinity.
0: Yeah, all that stuff. Really
3: nasty stuff.
0: And once again, it's a preoccupation with images in the world, but still. (laughs) still. We've come a long way in terms of (laughs) we've lightened up some anyway. (laughs) Like, like well, I couldn't believe how bad it was. (laughs) It was something. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's neither. That's just the world. The world does that. It'll do it again. <laughs> the big thing now is women are back in the, home, in the home, and they're the ones that are supposed to take care of the kids and cook everything. <laughs> it's like that's challenging a lot of professional women at this point. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so yeah, it's what we do as egos. <laughs> we gotta find victims and victimizers. So the the real big thing, and the key question all the time is, (laughs) what for? And that's what he says in paragraph six. And this is one of those paragraphs we shouldn't memorize. (laughs) What for? Is it the ego's purpose or is it the Holy Spirit's purpose? Everything I'm doing is one of those two purposes. If I'm in ego mode, I'll find victims and victimizers Whether I'm watching Miss America or something happening now. (laughs) Whether I'm watching a play about the 70s or a play about, you know, the, the 2000s. What is it for? What do you want? Meaning if I want to maintain separation and blame it on my brother, I have to find victimizers. Paragraph six, line two, that's the real question. What do you want must be answered. And you answer it anytime you do anything. Because whatever you do is a projection of which teacher you've chosen internally. If you've chosen the ego, we have to look for victimizers and not admit that's what we're doing. Because that's as crazy as, as you know, choosing a lack of love. (laughs) I mean, why why would we have to go through a day looking for victimizers? That's awful. Well, it is awful. (laughs) But that's what the ego has us doing. If we choose the Holy Spirit, he's gonna let us have a day like Alexa had the other day with the bank guy. Did anybody hear that story of Alexa? Oh, she went, yeah, she went into the bank and she decided, the next person she saw, she was gonna greet them as the son of God. (laughs) And the whole bank lit up. She was shaking the bank guy's hand and the bank manager's hand. And it was just like this amazing exuberant experience. (laughs) But that's what, you know, we can have that. We can go looking for good guys. You know, in everybody, instead of looking for victimizers. <laughs> so that's, that's the purpose. Those are the two purposes. Am I looking for bad guys, or am, am I willing to see innocence past what I think I'm seeing? What do you want must be answered. You are answering it, once again, what Bruce was pointing out, every minute, every second, each moment of decision is a judgment that is anything but ineffectual. You'll either feel bad or you won't. (laughs) Those are the choices. You might pretend to feel good for a little while. Maybe the bad guy's going to get it. (laughs) But it's not a real feeling of feeling good. It's anything but ineffectual. If I'm looking for bad guys, I have to be feeling guilt, internal guilt, and I have to be projecting it on you. As he said, guilt is disruptive. You'll have a bad day. Even if you think it's going okay, normally. You know, and it catches up. It, you know, it keeps coming up and it'll come up and then suddenly you blow up and you don't know why you blew up. <laughs> or things got really crazy and it seemed like it come out of nowhere. No, it's just because we were operating in the ego mode. In, uh, in the 12 Steps, we talk about addiction seems to pop its head in out of nowhere. Nah. and <laughs> You stop praying. You stop working the steps. You stop asking your higher power for help. And then suddenly you get, you know, sidewinded <laughs> by, by your addiction. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, you, you kind of dropped out of the process. Same thing with the ego and the Holy Spirit. We'll feel good when we're in that mode. And we're in the mode of looking for innocence instead of looking for guilt. We won't feel good. <laughs> and it will come to the surface if we're, we're in ego mode and we're looking for bad guys. It's that simple. <laughs> it's, it's horribly that simple from the ego's point of view. <laughs> the poor body's got to run around doing all that stuff and then pretend it's not doing that. So the, the whole in line six, the Holy Spirit, like the ego, is a decision the thing with the ego is you decide for the ego, and then you've got to quickly repress you did that, and then project all that pain on somebody else. So when we're deciding for the ego, we have no idea. But when we're actively, consciously asking the Holy Spirit for help, it's a, it's a real flow between the right mind and ourselves as the seeming stick figure in the world. It's conscious. We're working on it. <laughs> Mostly we're working on trying to catch our ego doing the next thing, <laughs> the next setup. <laughs> the next upset so it's that um hmm. yeah the holy spirit and the ego are the only choices open to you yeah, go ahead somebody trying to say something nope are we good um guilt Oh, This is paragraph seven, line three. Guilt feelings are always a sign that you don't know this, meaning that you set it up. You don't really understand that there's a Holy Spirit. <laughs> you don't understand there's another choice. You don't understand you even have a mind. That's what guilt feelings are all about, to keep you focused on the guilt in the world and not the internal guilt. So guilt feelings in the world doesn't mean my stick figure is just feeling guilt. It means it's looking for guilt. In all the wrong places, I'm trying to pin it on my brother, not the real source, meaning I'm hanging on to this idea of separation. Uh, yeah. in um, paragraph eight, I think we'll kind of do this as uh, a closing. In uh, paragraph 8 on page 86, this is the last paragraph in uh, section 5. Then you up for reading that one?
1: Uh, sure. The continuing decision to remain separated is the only possible reason for continuing guilt feelings. I wanna read that again. (laughs) The continuing decision to remain separated is the only possible reason for continuing guilt feelings. We have said this before, but did not emphasize the destructive results of the decision. Any decision of the mind will affect both behavior and experience. What you want, you expect. This is not delusional. Your mind does make your future and it will turn it back to full creation at any minute if it accepts the atonement first it will also return to full creation the instant it has done so having given up disordered thought the proper ordering of thought becomes quite apparent
0: We'll get quiet for a little bit. I'll bring us out. And gently, gently come back. Just a closing thought. One of the words Jesus used in this section a lot was the forsake thing. It's used a lot in the Bible. Probably one of the worst stories in the Bible <laughs> that I can't imagine was true was when at Jesus' door, just before his crucifixion, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken
2: me? Nah. Nah. <laughs> No, nah, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Go ahead, Bruce. There, there's a, a wonderful series of books that actually first, first got me into metaphysics in the early 70s called Life and Teachings of the Master of the Far East. Mm-hmm. And, and in that book, Jesus basically comments how that was a misquote, you know, in the, in the I guess it's sort of channeled material, but it, by Beard Spaulding. And he said, no, what I really said is you have never forsaken me. And basically that that would, would have been impossible. And that was kind of like one of my earliest introductions to the idea that like, wait a minute, God. 't have made up this world you know basically anyway
0: and, and it's it's a, it's a play in that case um, it, there's a, a story in Deuteronomy something was going on and, and God's promising the Israelites he's not going to forsake them. He won't abandon them. He won't give them up. he won't give them over to the bad guys. <laughs> he won't forsake them. that's basically what abandon I mean forsake means abandon. Jesus, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? You know, and, and, and so that, that line St. Paul uses later on to reaffirm, <laughs> God is not in this to abandon you. And certainly from the Course's point of view, God is not in this to forsake you because you didn't sin. He can't forsake you like Bruce said. He can't forsake you. <laughs> it's not part of the deal. <laughs> it's not part of who we truly are. So, so don't don't you know? I mean, we can get through a day without thinking God's going to forsake us. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> Sometimes that's irritating to us as egos, but God thinks otherwise. Now nah, God's not going to forsake us. <laughs> On that sort of happy note, <laughs> thanks everybody for coming. Thank you. Tim. Yeah. Oh, let's do in the next part, the last part of chapter five tomorrow. <laughs> you won't have to suffer through chapter five. And <laughs> but then we're on to chapter six. And that's
1: saying. a really nice ending to chapter five, <laughs> the decision for God. I love it. She says
0: that about all the chapters.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know.
3: See you tomorrow. Yeah.
0: Thank you. See ya. <laughs>